It's a privilege to be standing before you on this uh, beautiful Sabbath day down here in um, sunny Southern California. Um, As someone who migrated down on Wednesday night from Michigan, I was truly grateful to arrive at the airport and to take off all my cold weather gear. And uh, my wife and I are thinking maybe we should apply for political asylum down here uh, in light of the upcoming uh, winter months up in Berrien Springs. But it's a privilege to come and share with you here this, uh, this beautiful Sabbath day. Uh, I bring greetings from my wife, who um, normally she's on the other side of the world, but today she's sitting back over there. So greetings from my family, uh, my wife, our two children. And uh, today I'm going to be sharing with you about one of the most famous missionaries in the Bible and the lessons we learn about how serving in missions actually transforms us. Uh, So I invite you to bow your heads with me and we'll invite the presence of the Holy Spirit. Dear Father, as uh, we break open the bread of life, I ask that you speak through me and for me. I ask that you still the voices of this world and that your spirit be the only voice that each of us hear today. So Father, use me and work in a powerful way in each of our hearts and our lives and our ministries. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I really resonated with Thursday night, the, the presentations about how your Your clinic, your consulting room can be a place where the gospel is shared. My first recollection of sharing the gospel was when I was 10 years old, my mother took me in to have my tonsils and adenoids out uh, because Prince Charles had his out, so it became the normal thing for little boys to do in England. And um, the nurse was checking us in, and she said, well, you know, what does he eat? And my mum said, pretty much everything. Uh, She said, no, vegetarian. Yeah, he's vegetarian. And uh, then she said, what's your religion? And my mother said, Seventh-day Adventist. And the nurse says, no, no, I haven't heard of those. And so my mum said, well, um, there's that big hospital in California called Loma Linda. The nurse says, no, no, I've never heard of them. And my mum said, well, um, there was that missionary family who died of malaria over in Sierra Leone just last year. They were Adventists. No, no, I haven't heard of those. And being 10, I wanted to help my mother out. So I said, well, you know that lady in Australia who was convicted of killing her baby and she claimed a dingo took it? (laughs) Well, she was an Adventist as well. And my mother looked at me, and even at the age of 10, I realized it was, it was not pure and unadulterated love in her eyes at that moment. <laughs> she was, of course, innocent, a tragic miscarriage of justice. So I want to talk to you today, share with you about um, one, of the most, uh, one of the first stories we learn in Cradle Roll, and that's the story of Jonah. Now, I'm not going to put any Bible texts on the screen today because we're going to work our way through this incredible story, but we're going to start out in 2 Kings chapter 14 because this is the first time that we meet Jonah. We don't meet Jonah for the first time in the book of Jonah. We meet him in 2 Kings chapter 14. And if you have your Bibles, turn there, and we're going to pick it up in verse 23, 2 Kings 14 and verse 23, and it says there, In the 15th year of King Amaziah, son of Joash of Judah, King Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. He reigned 41 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he caused Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath, that's Lebanon in the north, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea in the south. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant who? Jonah son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the distress of Israel was very bitter, 
and there was no one left, bond or free, and no one to help Israel. During Jeroboam's reign, um, Assyria to the north was relatively weak, uh, Egypt to the south was relatively weak, and so Jeroboam was a successful military king, and uh, he expanded Israel's territory, and the resident prophet in Israel was Jonah. Jonah maybe wasn't the most effective of prophets because God had to call Amos from the kingdom of Judah to come up to uh, Israel and to um, call them to account for the fact that the rich were exploiting the poor. And when God called Amos from Judah up into Israel, God had a task for Jonah. And God wanted Jonah to go somewhere else. And so if you turn in your Bibles, we're going to come to Jonah chapter 1. And here we find Jonah once again, Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. And we're going to stay mostly in Jonah through this uh, uh, sermon here today. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Get up at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And you can imagine Jonah saying, "Uh, Nineveh, Uh, are you sure about that, Lord? Do you know who the Ninevites are? Are you sure you want to bring them mercy? Who exactly were the people of Nineveh? Well, that was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. You can go to Nineveh today. It's the uh, city of Mosul in northern Iraq. And in 2014, when I was out there and ISIS was sweeping across northern Iraq, ISIS captured Mosul, and they destroyed the the tomb of Jonah, which was there until the, the year 2014. Now, Jonah had a very successful ministry because most Christians in Iraq are in the north, around the plains of Nineveh, as they're called, and they are the ethnic Assyrians. Jonah's spiritual descendants are still alive today, one of the largest Christian groups in northern Iraq, in fact, in virtually all of Iraq. Now, Nineveh was known for its cruelty. Uh, The people of uh, Assyria, they had three major phases of their empire. They had the early Assyrian period, that was the 23rd to the 15th centuries BC. The Middle Assyrians were the 15th to the 10th centuries. And then you have the Neo-Assyrian, which is the 10th to the 7th centuries BC. And this is when Jonah is alive. And the names of the Assyrian Assyrian kings, at their names, peoples and nations trembled. Uh, um, Tiglath-Pileser III, Sargon II, Sennacherib, Esarhaddon, Asurbanipal. They led um, campaigns of conquest, and wherever they went, they employed cruelty to its maximum effect. When they wanted to conquer a city, they often wouldn't bother with siege warfare. They would just take some of the prisoners and impale them outside the city gates and say, either you surrender now or we'll do this to all of you when we get in. They also built um, pits filled with oil, and they had their prisoners run around them. The oil would be on fire, and they'd push the prisoners in, a practice later picked up outside the gates of Auschwitz. A.T. Jones was sent by the General Conference on a world trip to cool his heels at one point, and while he was on this uh, world trip, he wrote a series of books on the history of the Bible and the empires of the Bible. He wrote a book called Ecclesiastical Empire, which talks about the history of the Catholic Church. He spoke about uh, the Four four Kingdoms of uh, Daniel 2, and he wrote a, a book called Empires of the Bible. If you never read it, I'd recommend it, and he goes into great detail on what the Assyrian kings were boasting about doing to their victims around the world, and what What they were doing would rank um, as some of the worst war crimes in human history. In fact, Nahum is an oracle against Assyria. Nahum chapter 3 in verse 1 says this, Ah, city of bloodshed, utterly deceitful, full of booty, no end to the plunder. It goes on to bring God's judgment upon the people of Assyria. And at the very end of that book of Nahum, 
Uh, Nahum says this, there, there is no assuaging your hurt to the people of Nineveh. Your wound is mortal. All who hear the news about you, that is of your destruction, clap their hands over you. And this is the crucial question. For who has ever escaped your endless cruelty? Endless cruelty. And it is to these people that Jonah is sent by God. Now the text says, in Jonah chapter 1, Get up at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, this raises to our minds two images from the Old Testament. The first is Genesis 6, where the evil of mankind has come up before God. The other passage where this is expressed is Genesis 18, where God comes down to examine for himself Sodom and Gomorrah because their wickedness has come up before me. If we interpret this passage for their wickedness has come up before me in the light of Genesis 6 and Genesis 18, it implies that God's period of probation is about to close for the people of Nineveh and Jonah is going to be God's messenger of judgment. Like, hey guys, brace yourselves, judgment is at the door. But you may also translate this phrase for their wickedness has come up before me as their calamity has come up before me. We know from the Assyrian records that Assyria had many national setbacks during this period. And if we translate this, that their uh, their setbacks have come come up before me or their calamity has come up before me, it may be that God is more concerned about her problems than her sins. In which case, the message to go to Nineveh is not so much I'm going to announce God's judgment upon you, which every self respecting Israelite prophecy would love to do, but I'm about to go and offer God's mercy to you. And no self-respecting Jewish prophet wants to go to Nineveh and make that kind of announcement. And so Jonah gets up and he flees. It says in verse 3, So Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the sea. It's interesting this, just think of the geography. If Jonah is in here near, 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 in Gath Hefer, near, near Zebulun, near Galilee, God asks Jonah to go north and Jonah goes south. God asks Jonah to go east and Jonah goes west. Okay, let's just understand what, what Jonah does. He doesn't just go to Tarshish. God says go north and Jonah goes south. God says go east and Jonah goes west. He is truly running away from God. And he gets into a ship going to Tarshish, which we believe is in southern Spain, a source of silver, iron, tin, and lead. But in this story, and for us today, I believe that Nineveh has a greater significance than just ancient Nineveh. Nineveh represents that world outside of spiritual Israel, all of those who we may consider are outside of a covenant walk with God. So where's your Nineveh? Who do you consider beyond the reach of God's love and mercy? It may be a person, maybe a work colleague, maybe a patient, maybe your mother-in-law, quite possibly so. (laughs) Who do you consider to be on the reach of God? Who do you love to hate and who would you hate to love? You may have that person in your life. You may have come here to this beautiful campus And we all look very beautiful sitting here on the Sabbath morning, but the chances are that somebody in this hall today has come from a place of conflict and a place of strife. And God is asking you to get up from this place when we leave and to go back and be a minister of mercy to the one who is causing you pain. Tarshish is not just the other side of the Mediterranean. It represents about as far away from God as I can get. And when we run from God, we have that little me space in our lives 
You may have a, I don't know, a man cave. You may have a habit. You may have a thought. You may have a series of events that you like to play in your mind to justify your less than Christian behavior to your neighbor. What is your Tarshish? We say, God, you can have control of all of my life, but this little bit here, allow me to nurture this bitterness towards somebody else. I'm in the right to be bitter to this person. I can hate this person. I'm justified in feeling this way about this person. It may be an online habit with immorality. It may be a prejudice against an ethnic group or another minority group in our society. We love to run to our Tarshishes, but God doesn't let us run there because when we try and run there, we find that he's already there. Where's your Nineveh? Where's your Tarshish? Listen to the Spirit speak to you this morning. Don't just come for the fellowship, but come so that you may return as an agent of God's mercy to your home, to your practice, and to your community. And so Jonah gets in the boat, Jonah 1, verse 4. It says, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners, or the sailors, were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the, sh- in the ship into the sea and began to lighten it for them. Now, these are pagan sailors, and what you notice about these pagan sailors is before, before they start to throw the stuff overboard, they start praying. Yes, they're pagans, But before they take physical action, they turn to God, in stark contrast to Jonah later in the story. But the first thing they do is when they see trouble coming, they turn to God, to their gods, not to Jehovah God. We come to that later. They turn to their gods and they pray. And there's another misconception, and we see this in missions all the time. We may think that we are God's covenant people, and that is what we are, but there are people around the world today, and when you speak to them, we may disagree with the theology But when they tell you their story, it's hard to avoid the conviction that the Holy Spirit is working on their lives. I've listened to many Muslims who've told me their story about how they've come to a faith in Jesus Christ. As I listen to their story, I may disagree with the theology, absolutely, but I cannot avoid the conviction that God is at work in their lives just as much as in mine. We need to open our eyes and realize that actually those who are ostensibly far from God are actually very open to spiritual truth and to the presence of God himself. And so those pagan sailors start praying to their gods, and nothing happens. And so the captain comes down into the hold, verse 6, and says, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. And so Jonah, he gets up, but there is again no indication that Jonah prays. The pagans are praying, the captain is praying, the sailors are praying, but Jonah has yet to pray. And he gets up, and what does he say to them? He says in verse 9, I am Hebrew. Is that true, yes or no? Absolutely, it's true. Then the next thing he says is, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. It's in capital letters, L-O-R-D, which means this is Yahweh or Jehovah. So I worship Yahweh, which we believe is the pre-incarnate Jesus in Old Testament times. I worship Jesus. Now, is that true? Is that true? Maybe. I want to challenge you today and say that did Jonah Jonah know God's will for him? Yes. Was Jonah following God's will for him? No. How can we ask for God's blessings in ministry while we're living in willful disobedience to God's revealed will? It is precisely because Jonah is ignoring God's revealed will that he's running into the storms of life. Now, there are other reasons why we have storms in life. I understand that. But there are times when we are working in direct opposition to God's revealed will. 
And then we wonder why the storms of life hit us. When we place ourselves outside of God's protection, when God's clear, there is a clear, thus saith the Lord, and we say, but thus saith Conrad, I'm gonna follow my own sweet way. The storms of life come our way. Jonah was in a desperate situation precisely because he knew God's will and he was deliberately ignoring God's will. And so in verse 11, Jonah gives a solution to the sailors. What shall we do, they said to him. He said in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will quieten down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, these pagan sailors rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Jonah commands the sailors to throw him overboard, but the pagan sailors seek to save his life. And as we go through the story, at no time does Jonah show any concern about the well-being of the pagans. In fact, he's furious in chapter 4 that the pagans, the people of Nineveh, have turned to God. There is no joy in this missionary's mind that these irredeemable, wicked pagan sailors have turned, are actually trying to save his life, even though he's of another faith. Jonah seems to forget that God delights to forgive. Maybe he believes that God wanted his life to pay for his sin of turning his back on God. It's not surprising that as Jonah doesn't seem to believe that God can forgive him, that he was unwilling to be God's minister of mercy to the people of Nineveh. Those who don't believe God can or will really forgive them are often unable to extend forgiveness to others. So when was the last time you experienced God's grace? I have a colleague in the office, he said, when we are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That the, the, the name of God is his character. Would you agree? And God's character is love. So to be baptized in God's character of love means that God's love permeates every aspect of your being. You experience God's love in your health. You experience God's love in your relationships. You experience God's work in inner healing. You experience God's work in a sense of uh, uh, alignment with his will in your life and in the relationships that are closest to you. But if you've never experienced God's grace for yourself, how can you be minister of God's grace to those around you? So I want to challenge you today as you go away from this place today or tomorrow to ask yourself, when was the last time you experienced God's grace? What did that feel like? And ask God to give someone in your life to whom you can be a channel of God's grace in turn so they can experience the same blessings in their life. The pagan sailors, they row Jonah, they're trying to get back to land, but to no avail, and Jonah is thrown overboard. Now these pagan sailors, that's not the last we hear of them because it says in verse 14, then they cried out to who? What does your Bible say? They cried out to who? The Lord, Jehovah, they're no longer praying to their pagan gods. They've met this this hard, hard-headed, redneck missionary. I can say that as an Englishman. Because the origin of the phrase redneck is from the Boer War of 1902. When the English arrived in South Africa to fight the Boers, they wear these red uniforms and their backs of their necks were all white. And uh, their back, the backs of their necks went red and they were called ruinecks by the Boers. Rednecks. Uh, last two weeks ago, I was preaching in a camp meeting in South Africa, learning some essential South African phrases, such as Baraya Slaka, which means barbecue is best, and other important ministry phrases. Um, I also learned Ak is in Ruinek Pasta. I'm a Ruinek Redneck Pastor. It's amazing what you learn in the mission field. But these pagan sailors, in verse 14, then they cried out to who? The Lord. 
Then they say, please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood. For you, O Lord, this is the third time they mention Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord, Yahweh, even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, Yahweh, and made vows. Five times in these three verses we have Yahweh mentioned. It is clear that God works through imperfect instruments. That despite this hard-necked missionary who had no concern for the pagan sailors, who really couldn't care less whether they live or die, who's not concerned about their salvation, he's doing everything wrong missiologically, yet despite that, God brings these pagan sailors to conversion. We don't need a degree in systematic theology to share our faith. We just need a willingness. Lord, I consecrate this day to you. Use me as you see fit. If you pray each morning, Father, bring me somebody into my life who will ask me a question about you, God will bring that person into your life. And you may not have uh, all the doctrines nailed down in your mind, but a very simple thing to say these days is, well, you're right. Life is complex. I don't have all the answers. But I found this little pamphlet to be useful. I want to encourage you to be bearers of the printed, printed material whether it be glow tracts, whether it be steps to Christ, whether it be ministry of healing, carry that literature with you and be a blessing to somebody with it because it gives them something to be thinking about. Even if I don't have all the answers, God will speak to them through the spirit of prophecy or whatever other literature you hand out to them. We see in this story here that these heathen pagans are actually more ethical than God's own missionary. These outsiders are actually more open to God than Jonah himself one of God's nominal people. In AFM, we run a project called the Dream Project. Maybe some of you heard about it. And since about the year 2000, Jesus has been appearing to Muslims all around the world in dreams and visions, inviting them to follow him. And if you take a look at that website, Dreams of Isa, read it maybe this afternoon. Look, read the dreams that are being posted from about 120, 130 countries a month. And what you'll find is the Advent message is going out to the Muslim world directly from Jesus' own lips. Repeatedly, Muslims are posting, I had a dream of a man in white, said there are three angels with three messages. What does this mean? And the number one thing that the Muslims are saying, and they post these dreams on our website, is Jesus says he's coming soon, and they need to be ready for him. And so we may wonder, how does the gospel go to the Muslim world? And I would say to you today, the gospel is already going to the Muslim world. And there have been more conversions since the year 2000 from Islam to the body of Christ than from the 14, uh, 1400 years before that, from Muhammad to the year 2000. But Jesus is at work. And so when we share the gospel with our Muslim friends, our Muslim neighbors, we can, be, we can know that Jesus is already at work in that community. It's an amazing thing. Check it out, Dreams of Isa. Jesus is at work. I know Jesus is coming again because many Muslims have had dreams of Jesus and he says, I'm coming again. Just a couple of weeks ago, I received a phone call from a lady who is now in kind of like a witness protection program. She is the sister of perhaps the most famous, the most famous Muslim leader in the world who was a dictator in his own country. And she was uh, dying of cancer and she'd heard that Jesus heals. So she knelt down one night and she said, Jesus, if you're alive, I want you to heal me. She says, Jesus appeared to me. I said, what does Jesus look like? She said, his, his body is a mixture of fire and diamonds. That's the best way I can describe it. It was overwhelming. And he said, I'm gonna heal you and I ask you to follow me. She was healed. 
she told her dictator relative, and uh, she fled for her life, and for the last 15 years has been traipsing around the world escaping assassins. Now she's an Adventist, and she said, I'm ready to get back in the fray. What can I do to reach Muslim women who are having dreams of Jesus? God is doing something amazing in these last days, and he's inviting each one of us here to be a part of what God is already doing. So then we come back to Jonah. It says there in chapter 1, verse 17, but the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then, chapter 2, verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Have you noticed the sequence there? Jonah goes into the belly of the fish. Now, my parents... Um, we flew to America when I was 10 to see my dad graduate from Andrews, and on the way over the Atlantic, I watched Jaws on that 747. And I was old enough to know, as I looked at the map, I looked at the movie, that if that plane came down, I was going to have a close and personal encounter with Jaws. And for years later, even going to the restroom was a traumatic experience for me. You know, these movies do impact young children. But Jonah, when he sees that mouth coming up to him, doesn't pray. When the fish swallows him, he doesn't pray. And he goes into the stomach of the fish for the first day, and you wonder what he's thinking down there, don't you? As the text says, it's after three days and three nights that Jonah thinks, maybe I should pray. (laughs) What does it take to, to get this man of God to turn to God in prayer? Like, day one, no prayer, I'll go to sleep. No morning devotions, no night devotions. He wakes up, what should I do today? Well, it's kind of interesting down here. I wonder what's gonna happen in the fish's stomach. Day two, night two, nothing happens. Day three, night three, he wakes up. Maybe I should turn to God in prayer. You see, in chapter one, God spoke to Jonah. He sent a great wind, he caused a storm, he sends a a fish to swallow him. He hears and answers the prayers from pagan sailors. He causes a fish to vomit, to uh, swallow Jonah. But at no stage in chapter one does Jonah ever think, I need to pray about missions, about my role in missions. And as a result, he's in the stomach of that fish. And so far, if you look at this chapter 1 and chapter 2, Jonah's movements has been a series of downward motions. Chapter 1, verse 3, he went down to Joppa. He gets to Joppa and he goes, in chapter 1 and verse 4, he goes down into the hold of the ship. And the ship goes up and the ship goes down in the sea. Then he says in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into or down into the sea. And uh, he goes down into the sea where a fish swallows him. And in chapter 2, it says, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. So he's descending into, might say, uh, what they viewed as Hades. You cast me, chapter 2 and verse 3, into the deep. So he's going down, down, down into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. And all your waves and billows passed over me. So he's going down, 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 down. The waters closed, verse 5, over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land. He's going to die. As long as Jonah is living in willful disobedience to God's will, his life is a series of downward motions. And finally, verse 6, he turns to God in prayer, and when he turns to God in prayer, verse 6 says, yet you brought my life up from the pit. And the turning point in Jonah's ministry is when he starts to pray. We can have all the plans in the world, we can have buildings and budgets and policies and people, but unless the Spirit is leading the Spirit is guiding, nothing is going to go well. Bathe your ministry in prayer. Do not go through all kinds of traumatic experiences and then say, maybe we should pray about it now. Start with prayer. Lead with prayer. Bathe it in prayer. Surround it with prayer. Ask God to lead. Whatever decisions you make, give God the sovereign rights to say, Lord, whatever we've decided today is in your hands. 
If you want this to happen, may you bless it. If you have some other plans for us, then take us in another direction. But bathe your ministry in prayer. Do not be like Jonah, uh, living a life, a ministry without any obvious prayer and running into trouble all of the time. So in chapter two, verse 10, I see there's a clock in front of me. I've got 15 minutes left, so I need to move really quickly through this stuff here. The Lord spoke to the fish and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. Chapter three, verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. Does disobedient Jonah deserve to be saved by God? Do you think he's earned the right to be saved? He's been running away from God. He has no concern for the lost. I think Jonah has been saved out of God's mercy, not out of God's justice. And so the stage is set for for one of the greatest evangelistic series of all time, but Jonah now knows that his ministry is only alive by the grace of God, not by the virtue of human planning. This ministry is driven by God, and I can only engage in ministry to the extent that God opens doors for me. And so we come to chapter three. I'm not gonna say much about this, except it's one of the greatest evangelistic series ever preached, would you agree? What I would say about this is Jonah is an Israelite prophet who's been the advisor to King Jeroboam who promised to make Israel great again, and yes, he did. He's a political prophet, is our Jonah. He advised Jeroboam, that wicked king. But there's something about his ministry, and I would say this, Jonah's ministry has credibility. They hear the voice of God when Jonah speaks. Some of our missionaries in AFM, they work on the other side of the world, and I won't mention the country because they still work there, but many years ago, there was a revolution of sorts, and for about five years, the ruling party um, tried to kill anybody with an education, including the doctors and nurses of that country. There at Southeast Asia, over a million people died in the trauma of that Southeast Asian country. And after that trauma, the medical system has remained broken to this day. Doctors or students bribe to pass their exams. They bribe to get good positions. They will not treat patients except for cash in hand. They rarely attend their posts except to drink or play volleyball or national sport. The locals are scared of the doctors because doctors have been seen to slap patients for crying out when they're in pain and chastised for asking questions. And the doctors don't tell you your proper diagnosis. Why? Because they want to milk you of all your assets before you die. And as a result of this, people in that nation increasingly are turning to witch doctors. And uh, some of our missionaries, they tell us, they say, well, you see people walking around with the foot set the wrong way round. And the arm is set out at an angle. They have broken bones, and the witch doctors try and set these bones, and the result is an absolute disaster for those those people. What What our missionaries have found, and some of them are nurses, is that when you listen respectfully to a patient who is a Muslim in that country, and you pray with them, you're actually a revelation of God to that patient. For most local Muslims in that country, the first Christian they ever meet is a medical missionary, a doctor or a nurse. And because of their ministry, church has been planted in that that unreached Muslim people group. Those are locals, they give names to the foreigners that live in their midst. And one of our missionaries is a young man, he's been there for many years. He said to a local man, he said, okay, so you give all of us missionaries names, what's my name? He said, well, we call you Isa. That means Jesus in Arabic. We call you Isa. We see Isa in you. 
And because those missionaries, they serve in love, and they serve with respect, and they serve among the unreached, and they are perhaps the first who show a personal care to those sick and broken people, the gospel is going forward among that unreached people group. There is plenty we can do for the gospel. And I would say this, that those missionaries, their proclamation of the gospel has credibility because of the way they minister and live among those communities. Does your ministry have credibility? Do you have that same credibility when you share the gospel? You know, you may get to church all in a lather because the kids are late, then you put your best face on. And some kids kind of dread the Sabbath morning rush because they know that dad's kind of angry, got to get to church, got to get to church, and as soon as you walk in through the church doors, everything is right as rain again. Do you have credibility in your personal life? Do your children see Jesus in you? If these Muslims can see Jesus in these missionaries, I want to challenge you today to ask that those closest and nearest and dearest to you will see Jesus in your character. Because if those closest to you do not see Jesus in your character, neither will your work colleagues or those you minister to. Ask that Jesus be revealed in your character on a day-to-day basis. So we come to chapter four. We're moving fast through this chapter. Chapter three, in verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did, that is their repentance, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he'd said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So the Assyrians turned from their evil ways, quite literally, and then literally it says, God repented of the evil that he was about to bring upon them. So God's message to the people of Nineveh delivered through Jonah was not an absolute promise of divine destruction, but it was a heartfelt appeal for them to repent so that God's mercy and compassion could be shown to them. But chapter four, verse one, there's a play on words, literally says, but this was evil unto Jonah, a great evil. So the people of Nineveh repent of their evil. God in turn repents of the evil that he's about to bring upon them. And the next verse says, but this was evil unto Jonah, a great evil. Like Jonah is upset that his target people aren't going to be fried alive with, with a brimstone from heaven. What a missionary, yes? I'd love Jonah to be a missionary in my community, wouldn't you? Yes, please, please be saved, but if not, I'll be delighted to see you fried alive. Divine mercy had spared Jonah's own life in the storm and in the fish, yet he was angry and jealous when God extended mercy to the hated Assyrians. And so in chapter 4 and verse 2, Jonah says this to God. O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country, that this is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning? For I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah reveals why he fled from God in chapter 1. All along he'd been afraid that God would not destroy Nineveh. He'd been afraid that God would actually be a God of mercy to the unreached. He'd been afraid that God is a God who delights to forgive those who dwell in darkness. And because of this, he doesn't want to be a part of their salvation. You see, Jonah belongs to ethnic Israel. He's God's prophet to God's covenant people, his treasured possession. The God's people are supposed to be a holy nation in a covenant relationship with God. And all the other nations, including the Assyrians, are the Goyim, the hated Gentiles, as far as Jonah is concerned. They're outside the covenants, the enemies and occasional oppressors of God's people, and by definition, they're the living lost. Why go to the Ninevites? From Israel's perspective, from every self-respecting Jewish missionary's perspective, the only thing such nations as Assyria were fit for was God's destruction. Yes, it would have been a pleasure for Jonah 
to call for God's destruction upon Assyria, but unthinkable for him to pronounce God's final call of mercy to a dying city and a dying nation. And so he'd fled to Tarshish. Personally, as an ethnic Israelite and professionally, as a prophet of Israel, Jonah cannot face the terrible implication that God had used him to deliver the hated Assyrians from divine judgment. What would he say on his return to Israel? What could he say? Some would say that Jonah was a false prophet. His predictions had not come true. Others might say that Jonah was a traitor. He'd helped the people of Assyria to escape God's judgment. Whatever they said, whether you're a traitor or whether you are a false prophet, Jonah's reputation was toast when he got back to Israel. And he'd rather die than lose his reputation in the course of doing God's ministry. He's concerned about his reputation. God does not argue with Jonah. He asks him the first of three questions, is it right for you to be angry? The implied answer is no. In mercy, God has saved Jonah from drowning. In mercy, God has saved Jonah from the fish. In, in mercy, God had given Jonah a second chance of fulfilling the gospel commission. God has worked multiple deliverances in Jonah's life. So what right does Jonah or we have to be angry when God shows mercy to those who we love to hate? So before we move on to the second question, we're called to ponder, do we know God as the God who has given us multiple chances to begin over? Has God given you multiple chances? Every time you bow the knee and you ask God to forgive you and cleanse me of my unrighteousness, you're asking for a new chance. If so, if God has been gracious to you and has given you a new, a new chance even this morning, I want to challenge you today to be just as merciful to those in your life. Be generous in spirit, magnanimous in victory, and gracious to those who've hurt you. Because if we want God to forgive us, we need to be forgiving to those around us. The second question says, comes, we come to this in verse 6, is the Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah was happy about the bush. Well, the first time he's happy in the story is when he has material comfort. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. Then the sun arose and God prepared a sultry east wind known as the Sirocco in the Middle East. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. What's Jonah's problem now? Well, in the first uh, dialogue with God, Jonah is concerned about his reputation. In this second of the three questions, Jonah is concerned about that which brings him physical comfort. He's happy to be a part of God's people. He's happy to be a medical missionary. He's happy to go on a mission trip. But he becomes angry if serving God involves either loss of reputation or compromising his material comfort. He wants to serve God and protect his reputation. He wants to serve God and preserve his material comforts. He is unwilling, indeed, he is angry if he's asked to make any sacrifices for God on behalf of the lost. At no time has Jonah expressed any concern for the lost. There's no record of joy at the conversion of the pagan sailors, and he's deeply angry at the conversion of the Ninevites. His deepest emotions are reserved. Twice he wants to die when he senses a loss of reputation or physical comfort in the ministry of the gospel. On both occasions, he tells God that he wants out. Better to die than suffer any loss for the sake of Jesus. And so before we come to the third question, I want to ask you today, what is your shading vine? What gives you comfort? What gives you shelter? What makes you very happy today and yet has no eternal value. 
Are we upset when these material comforts of no eternal value are taken from us? Would we complain to God if being involved in ministry meant losing those comforts? And if we were to complain to God, how would God respond to us? We live today in maybe the top 1% of the global population. That is the truth. We have been blessed by God in so many ways. And the psalmist says, oh, may the Lord bless us, may the Lord keep us, may the Lord make his face to shine upon us. And the next phrase, verse says in that psalm, that your saving ways might be known to the ends of the earth. God blesses us, not that we hold those blessings, but that we can pass those blessings to other people. That is why we ask for God's blessings. And the more that I pass God's blessings onto my community, to a local health ministry evangelism, whatever the case may be, the more God sees I can trust this person with blessings so they can pass the blessings on around the world. If God has blessed you, pass on those blessings. Do not say, I will only serve God if there is no material comfort, uh, no, no, no compromise on my material comfort. It's harder for God to work through us if we have that kind of attitude. And the third question, God says to Jonah in verse, chapter 4 and verse 10, And the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and you did not grow it. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? It's a great question from God, isn't it? And, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a passage that comes to my mind. Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. And uh, there's, a, there's a verse we rarely talk about there. Uh, when I was uh, 17, I went out to Israel. I finished high school. I wanted to see the world. I had about 200 pounds to my name. And I didn't, that's not a lot of money. And so I decided to go to Israel to work on a kibbutz for a year. And the day I arrived, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And my parents called me on the phone. And they said, do you think you should come home? And I said, well, why would I come home? Saddam Hussein has just invaded Kuwait. Desert Shield is starting. There'll be Desert Storm coming down the pike. And being full of the invincibility of youth, I said, why would I go home? I'm perfectly safe in Israel. Just let me be out here. So we spent nights, you know, when the scuds came over, the air raid sirens went off, we'd go into the basement and we'd sit there. They gave us gas masks because we didn't know whether it was nuclear, chemical, biological, or high explosive on those scud missiles. It was an interesting time to be in the Middle East as a young man, I can tell you that. And God is concerned about the Assyrians, the wicked Assyrians, Ecclesiastes 4 verse 1 says this, I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. We'd all agree with that, yes? And look what God then says. On the side of their oppressors there was power with no one to comfort them. You see, I used to work on that kibbutz. I used to go and work in the olive gardens and the, the olive groves and the avocado trees and with me would always be an old Jewish guy from the kibbutz carrying a Lienfield rifle from World War I. And around me would be a lot of Arab boys from the West Bank. And that Jewish guy's job was to protect me against all these Arab boys. And both sides hated each other. Both sides are willing to kill. And both sides are trapped in an inescapable situation where if I'm not killing you, you're going to be killing me. Therefore, my only option to stay alive is to stay oppressing you. When people get trapped in that cycle of violence, as were the people of Nineveh, it is only the arrival of the gospel can set people free from the cycles of violence in our world today. And so God has a concern for the violent Assyrians, not because they're any more worthy than any other people on earth, but God sees that if the Assyrians take their foot off the neck of the nations around, the other nations will put their feet on the neck of the Assyrians. 
And so the Assyrians, as the oppressors, are not acting out of hate, but they're acting out of fear for what might happen to them if the situation was reversed. God has a concern not just for the victims, but God has a concern for the oppressors. So why do we have chapter four at the end of this book? You know, if I were writing the book of Jonah, I would start with the call in chapter one, I'd have the story of the whale in chapter two, I'd have God's struggle with this hard-necked missionary, hard-hearted missionary in chapter three, and I'd finish with the triumphant 120,000 baptisms. That's what I would do if I were writing this for the FM Frontiers magazine, all right? In this story, though, God can influence the storm and the fish and the pagan sailors and the men, women, boys, and girls of Nineveh, but the hardest heart to reach is that of his own missionary, which is why we end with chapter four with God still wrestling with this missionary. Sometimes, often, always, God calls us into ministry, not just because of who we're gonna reach for his kingdom, but because God wants to reach us. God has a work to do in our lives. God wants to strip us of our self-sufficiency or our ethnic prejudice or our sense that, you know, we've got money, we can do what we want or whatever the case may be. God calls us into ministry so that we realize that we are saved by grace and so is everybody else. That I have nothing to commend myself to God with except my plea for his salvation. God may be calling you into ministry here today at this Amen conference precisely because he wants to convert you. He wants you to experience the heart conversion that being involved in ministry brings, the dependence upon God, the realization that conversion is not a matter of the brilliance of your lessons or the wonders of your preaching, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And you are only a partners with God in mission. Mission is not my story, but it's God's story. Yeah, the mission is the story of God at work around us. So I'd like to appeal to you today. God has given this group here, he's blessed you in so many ways. Don't sit on those blessings. But commit today that you will serve God in a new and renewed way when you leave this Amen conference. Amen has just put up this mission database clearinghouse. Whatever a medical profession you're in, there's a place for you on that clearinghouse. You can look for calls where you can do a short-term or long-term assignment. There's the Amen Health Evangelism with the General Conference in St. Louis in 2022. Amen is collaborating with the General Conference. Be involved, put that into your calendars for next year, end of May, early June, 2022. Amen is partnering with Pathways to Health in Indianapolis next year, 17th through 21 of April. You can be there. You can take your staff with you. Your staff may be converted in the process of serving alongside you. Plan for these events. There are many, many things that we can do as medical professionals to be directly involved in ministry. If you want to be a long-term missionary overseas, you may go as a doctor or a nurse with General Conference or with AFM, we'd love to hear from you. But I would say this, the harvest is white, the fields are white into harvest, but the laborers truly are few. Just last night I was speaking, with, I have some colleagues in Korea, we're opening an office in Korea to recruit South Koreans into ministry. And yesterday we heard that North Korea is now open for non-US citizens to go as missionaries. For the first time in many years, we're now looking for non-US citizens to be missionaries into North Korea. God is opening doors before Jesus comes again. Opportunities are arising all around the world. So I wanna challenge you today. If not you, 
with all that God has blessed you with, then who? And if not now, as we see our world falling apart, then when? If not you, then who? If not now, then when? As Sister Melissa shares with us a hymn of commitment, a hymn of consecration, I invite you to prayerfully reflect on how the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, how you can be involved, whatever profession you may happen to be in, how you may bring your staff into ministry, how God wants to change you in the process of being a missionary. May God be glorified in your ministry, whatever you may do in this part of the world. May God bless you, and may God be glorified in your offices, in your medical practices, and in your personal lives. May God bless you. Father, at this critical juncture in world's history, may the world see through us that you're on your throne, that your character is love, that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should receive the gift of eternal life. Father, as we depart this house of worship today, I pray that you will lead each one of us into a new chapter of ministry written by your Spirit, watched over by your angels, a ministry where people see Jesus in each of us. May our walk with you be credible. May we yield to you today our private Ninevehs and Tarshishes. I pray, Lord, that people will see you in each of us. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and give you grace. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This day and forevermore, till Jesus comes in the clouds of glory. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.